1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. This week and every week on Biblical Anarchy, we seek to live counterculture to the empire of man and to instead seek the kingdom of God by unpacking what the Bible teaches about government, authority, and human relationships. I am your host, Jacob Daniel. Today, I'm joined by... Michael Heiss and his cat, (laughs) and Michael is the chair and founder of the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus, and Mike and the Mises Caucus are doing a tour around the country this year called Take Human Action Tour that we're excited to talk about, and also the Libertarian Christian Institute has decided to sponsor, and so if you attend any of the events, you'll see us there as well, and so I wanted to bring Mike on to have a conversation with him about the tour about the Mises Caucus, about his background a little bit, and sort of have a conversation about some of the overlap between Christian philosophy, praxeology, libertarianism, and all that. So, Mike, first of all, thanks for coming on the show. How
2: are you doing tonight? I'm doing good, man. Cat's being really lovey. I might have to. I might have to get him out of here. <laughs> if you have to throw him out, just let me know. So,
1: Mike. I haven't had really, on this new podcast I started with the Libertarian Christian Institute, I haven't really talked that much about the Mises Caucus, and I feel like big enough that most people probably know about it, but can you take a little bit of time here at the beginning to introduce yourself, explain your background, and just kind of explain the Mises Caucus, how it was founded, and a little two- to three-minute elevator pitch about what
2: it is and why it's important. Sure thing. So, Obviously, my name is Michael Heiss. I'm the founder and the chair of the Mises Caucus, and that's something that was started in late 2017. And really, the scope of it at the beginning was just to be kind of a clarion call to the Ron Paul revolution to kind of come and take over the Libertarian Party because there had been this huge divide, like division built up between the Libertarian Party and the Greater Liberty Movement. And we really felt that the Libertarian Party had lost its way and was not representing that movement and kind of really drifting leftward. So we got involved, we put that call out, and over time we did take over the party and we had Ron Paul's endorsement. Ron Paul came to our event the night before business where we actually like took the leadership at the Libertarian National Convention and a lot of battle stories, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears along the way. I mean, it took about four and a half years to get from nothing, literally a Facebook group, to be in the biggest group within the Libertarian Party as it stands right now. So that's kind of the story there. That's the easy story. Makes it sound a lot easier than it was. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, obviously we're named after Ludwig von Mises and we kind of see him as the godfather of the Austro-Libertarian tradition that we see ourselves as a part of. And so we're trying to uphold that through the Libertarian Party and take some of these tenets of decentralization and apply that to our strategy and really take that serious economic education and just bringing a realistic strategy to the Libertarian Party.
1: Yeah, no, the Libertarian Party within the Libertarian movement has often been the butt of many jokes, but it's definitely got a different tone and feel. Anyone who's been paying attention probably notices definite shift in the focus in terms of what what's talked about and just more concentration on, I think, being engaged and out there and trying to make an actual push on the Overton Window and even just the term Libertarian and Libertarian Party people, you know, we see Angela on Tim and you on Tim and Dave Smith going around on Joe Rogan. It's like, it's definitely feels like the image of the Libertarian Party is probably starting to shift in a lot of people's minds. And more people probably are hopefully coming to hear about the party than they had before. So you are doing with the Mises Caucus, you guys have organized this tour you guys call the Take Human Action Tour for this year that LCI is going to sponsor and show up at and you have a lot of speakers and stuff lined up. What is sort of the gist of this tour? What is it aimed at? What are you hoping to accomplish with it? And, you know, if what's your sales pitch for people to show up?
2: Well, everybody can go to takehumanactiontour.com and see all the details, see the dates, see who is at what stop of the tour. But basically, the Take Human Action Tour is one part of our strategy, like the, it's an element of the cultural part of our strategy. And the whole thing is aimed at community building and training for the political part. But, you know, long story short, we, we came in, we've launched this Project Decentralized Revolution strategy. And Project Decentralized Revolution is kind of an umbrella term for the projects that kind of comprise the, the uh, Project Decentralized Revolution. So we have our political strategy, but then there's also kind of this understanding of our, we have to have a cultural strategy. And there's multiple components to that. One part of it is we've kind of got to get out of our own echo chambers, get out of just purely libertarian circles and start to cross the aisle and form relationships with people who have platforms that might not be necessarily libertarian, but are open and friendly and see if we can't get access to them and access to their audience and start to reach out. And you would mention like Dave Smith going on Joe Rogan and that sort of thing. That is is a big component of this. You're at a point now where Tim Pool has libertarians on consistently. It's probably the biggest platform out there that has libertarians on it back consistently to that many people and allows us not just to get our ideas out there, but to kind of craft a narrative around who and what we are as libertarians. And I think that's very, very important. So, like, that's part of the strategy. But then also with the culture is our own culture, our own culture is a movement, as a party, and kind of strengthening the community and bringing them together and keeping those bonds tight so that. Uh, a culture can emerge. And that's really what this tour is. The tour is a six-city tour of speaking events across the country with some of the biggest voices in the liberty movement and kind of trying to get a cross-section of all of these speakers, audience, our audience, organizations like yours with the Libertarian Christian Institute and other sponsors or tablers to kind of just get as many people across the whole liberty movement at these things as possible, see if we can't recruit them into the party. And then, so that's all happening on the Saturday. And then on Sunday, there's free, completely free to attend candidate training that is available to kind of help prepare for the political part of the strategy as well.
1: For sure. Obviously, a little caveat here, the Libertarian Christian Institute, as a nonprofit, we can't make endorsements of candidates or political parties or things like that. But it is important, I think, for the educational part of what we do at LCI to talk about the Libertarian Party and what's going on there. And the Libertarian Party, this is actually a bit, something unpopular that maybe we can talk about here unpopular to some libertarians and probably the more i guess the term we would use is like the old guard of the libertarian party you would hear all the time from them that the focus of the party the point of the party was to run candidates and that was pretty much like step one just run as many candidates as possible step two question mark step three Liberty in Our Lifetime. lifetime. So very, very very ill-defined. And one of the things that I think was very key to sort of the Mises Caucus takeover and sort of like the refocusing or rebranding of the Libertarian Party that has been undertaken is a focus on education. And like you just said in in your answer about what the focus of the caucus and the party is, to talk to people outside of our circles and engage with them and to, to start opening people up to these ideas and not everyone's going to take that red pill all at once. Some people, they're going to come to us more gradually, or even if they don't, perhaps they don't become libertarians or ANCAPs like, like you and I are, but they'll have their mind shifted on one position or they'll realize, oh, we agree on this one position and maybe we can work together to make ground on that. But I think the one of the biggest shifts has been using the political party as an apparatus to engage in that sort of like, education and pouring out of that message. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that and sort of what's entailed with that. How do we focus as libertarians and if people want to be involved in the party, how do you use the party to engage in that sort of cultural conversation? Because some people don't, I think, immediately see how those two things are compatible because I think political party is just for running candidates.
2: It's easy to think that when maybe you're used to dealing with one of the big parties and you're half the country already. And your victory is either guaranteed depending on your district or at worst a coin flip. It's a little bit different for us where we're a much smaller party and most people don't know who we are. Most people don't know what we're all about. And we have to navigate that. So really there's a lot baked into that win elections thing then that we take for granted or that used to get taken for granted. How do you produce the votes? People are gonna have to be educated about us. They're gonna have to learn about who we are. So that means that we're going to have to take a modern approach and on how we get our voices out there. You know, in the past, it's all been kind of corporate media and that sort of thing. But that paradigm is, is going away. And right now, we're kind of in the age of the podcast for how people disseminate their ideas. So I also think that that's a great benefit for us because there are so many podcasters out there. You might have Joe Rogan at the top with like 13 million listeners a pop, but then you'll have some patchwork of people who might have 600,000 subscribers or a million subscribers over here. And there's just such a decentralized approach to how we disseminate information anymore. And then you got Twitter spaces on top of that. And there's just so many avenues available to us anymore. So in order for people to vote in mass to be libertarians, there's going to have to be a change in the public consciousness of the country. And you might call that the culture. Like what emanates out from that public consciousness, the psychic activity of the people, is essentially the culture. So really, we have to affect people where all action stems from, which is the mind. And the number one means of control that the government employs against us is psychological. It's propaganda. It's utilizing the fact that we are social creatures against each other so that we enforce the narrative and the standards of the state against each other, which then makes their job very, very easy. They don't have to use nearly as much force as they're capable of or when we do it to each other and keep each other in line socially. So this is all a cultural construction that holds all of this together, a shared narrative, a shared belief about the role of the state or the necessity of the state and all of that. And so we have got to figure out the avenues to push back against that. And that's what this is all about. We have to change people's thoughts and therefore change the culture before we could ever change politics. I mean, as a bumper sticker, I've said it a million times, liberty is going to have to be successful as a cultural movement before it could ever hope to be successful as a political movement. So that's where we have to attack first. Sure. So talking about
1: culture then, you know, this is obviously a Christian podcast and my audience and circles I swim in are predominantly filled with Christian and mostly Christian conservatives or at least Christian centrists. Not a lot of, I don't think a lot of progressive Christians watch my show. They'd probably be turned off by my politics and social views. But so when I'm talking to Christians, a lot of them feel like, well, the Libertarian Party doesn't have any power. The Republican Party does. The Republican Party has issues that they view as important to them as cultural Christians and conservatives, such as abortion, such as standing up to the sort of like woke ideology and whatnot. So I obviously have pushback against them, (laughs) and I'm sure you do too. But I want to try to make a sort of positive pitch to people of my ilk for I guess like starting before we even get to the party, just with like libertarianism, broadly speaking. And so this kind of touches on you and I, when we met, one of the things that we had in common was a huge interest in Jordan Peterson and like his biblical lectures and sort of his psychological perspective on the Bible. And I obviously appreciate that and also come to it with a deeply religious attachment to the Bible as well. But I view those things as working in tandem with each other I've always felt, we've talked about this off air, and so I want to get a chance to at least scratch the surface a little bit here on this conversation now. I feel like there is this huge crossover between libertarian anarcho-capitalist philosophy, Austrian economics and praxeology, and then Christianity, and especially when you look at Christianity through that lens of, like, archetypes and like union psychology that Jordan Peterson employs in like his biblical lectures and in his work. So what is your take on sort of this overlap? And what are the things that strike you about, I guess, like Christianity or the Bible that sort of lend themselves to libertarian ideas, if you were talking to a Christian and trying to relate to them in terms of like connecting those dots?
2: So, I mean, I'm going to talk about it in more of the archetypal terminology, like because I don't consider myself a Christian, I would say, based on a technicality. But basically, it's a call to the highest praxis. And so in order for you to have a relationship with God, there's something of a choice there. You have to submit. You have to give yourself to God, so to speak. You have to decide that you want to orient your life towards God. That is a choice. And the whole idea of the fundamental idea behind economics in the Austrian sense is that all human action is purposeful. That is what human action is. So it's all a choice and everything boils down to choice, which is why Bob Murphy's distillation of human action is called choice. Right. So you have to choose your praxis. You have to choose where you're oriented. You have to choose your ideal in order to have an aim in life. And I think the Bible and religion in general is kind of the call to or the highest call to meaning and praxis, and is the thing that can orient us. So where I think the connection is specifically is. I think kind of the archetypes and all of that stuff has a very similar methodology that, that can be employed to, to deduce it. That we as Austrians use to deduce, say, something like the business cycle. So, like the example that I've given privately, and this is the first time I've talked about this publicly. So this is all like a total theory. Like I don't have this all put together yet. Essentially, like the idea in Austrian economics is if I'm observing somebody in the supermarket and maybe they buy a pound of roast beef at a dollar sixty when they could have gotten a pound of ham at $1.30, you can non falsifiably logically say that they, their subjective valuation calculations is that roast beef in the moment was more valuable than ham. And you can't really logically dis- disprove that. I'm of the opinion that you can do something similar by observing people's behaviors in the social marketplace and then making logical deduction about how they value values. Hmm. And I think we use similar archetypal language to describe that matrix of values that we are observing when we make those calculations. So like, let's say me and you were talking about Fred and, you know, Fred was a friend of ours and then he backstabbed us or something like that. And I might say, well, Fred is a snake. What am I really saying when, when I'm saying Fred is a snake? It's me observing his actions to say that Fred is high in treachery, low in trust, and that I'm kind of observing what I'm calling this matrix of how he values his values to make a value judgment about his character that we affix the term snake to. I don't know if that makes sense, but...
1: No, it makes, yeah, it makes sense. And it's like, yeah, there's sort of like a a landscape of ideas or values, I guess. And for people, so the connection between like, we could say like the Austrian school of Austro-libertarianism and religion, even just like broadly speaking, and you can, or you can hone in on Christianity is that, When you're engaging in the world, you just in the same way in the economy, you have to, people make, in that Misesian sense of human action, people make subjective value judgments about what they value more in terms of, like you said, the example of ham or roast beef. People do that with their values culturally as well in terms of what they choose to support, what they choose to engage in. And, I mean, politics being... I don't know, I don't always like that saying, politics being downstream of culture, because I feel like it's both downstream and upstream. It's kind of like circular. Yeah. But politics is not detached from culture. And so ultimately, it's like your politics are always going to be informed by your culture. And that's why you can't ignore that cultural component, which is why I think it's a little weird. But I feel like, and it'd be interesting to get your response to this. I feel like there's something about the libertarian philosophy overall that makes more sense when you attach it in this sort of like sea of cultural values, when you look at it through that sort of like biblical Christian worldview. Cause I think otherwise, I mean, and not that I wanted to say you have to be a Christian to be a libertarian. That's not what my point is. My point is is that I think in kind of the same way Jordan Peterson would put it, I think that like to be a libertarian is to, put sort of at the top of that value hierarchy in terms of what you value, the sovereignty of the individual. And I think that's ultimately, in many ways, what's at, not it's not the only thing that's at the core of Christianity, but I think it's one of, one of the core messages that you find in the Bible and in Christianity, and that there's this heavy call in the Bible to live a life of personal responsibility and to not be swept up by The culture around you, but rather to transform the culture around you by elevating things like the logos, like truth, to that that highest point. So, this is stuff that, like, when I'm talking to you, I feel like you get it, and I feel like no one else listening is going to get it. But (laughs) I
2: don't know. What what do you What do you think about that? (laughs) Well, first of all, all action, whether it's economic activity or otherwise, all action is is economized. Meaning, we choose our actions through the lens of our value. Even in social situations, I'd rather talk to this person than that person. I would rather take this risk than that. You know, like it's not just economic activity that we kind of have to create a hierarchy of what we value and then act out. And so you might call our values um, kind of a filter in which our calculation goes through in order to choose and, hi- and make it and the hierarchy of those actions and that we're choosing. So not only the logos and all of that and the sovereignty of the individual, but basically, libertarianism is kind of like a, I would call it a base level philosophy. Like people try to construe libertarianism as if it's a full bore worldview and it's not. It's a philosophical and legal philosophy, which means that there is a lot of gaps that could be filled by other philosophies, like your ethic, for example. So I think when you have an ethic like Christianity that you are oriented to, again, that kind of acts as the filter by which you calculate your actions that in a sense have nothing to do with libertarianism because libertarianism is, are you violent or nonviolent? Are you respecting property rights or not? There's so much more to the world that might constitute the good life or might constitute a good person and their activity than just simply not being violent. You know what I mean? I know a lot of libertarian, like I've seen plenty of libertarian scumbags. You know, (laughs) like, like your ideology, your political ideology is not the thing that makes you a good person your character is. And then the things that develop your character are again, what you might call your cultural views or your ethic and all of that. So I think there's still a calling to kind of fill those gaps in with something that compels you to higher order principles that comprise your character. And that's perfectly compatible with libertarianism.
1: Right. And I would say like to a Christian who, to connect this back to like how I originally framed the topic, when I want to talk to a Christian about why libertarianism is important or why they should consider any kind of involvement in terms of like being politically active, which doesn't even mean joining a party. It just means like not putting your head in the sand to the world around you. And I think even just impacting culture, the way someone like Dave Smith or Tom Woods does has an effect on the political mechanisms around us. Because ultimately I think the problem is when Christian conservatives or Christian evangelicals look to let's say the Republican party to be the solution to changing the culture around them that they view as being overrun by a lot of these borderline demonic satanic ideologies, like, like you see on the left right now, they think, well, what you do is you seize the power of the government. You pass laws against that, you know, the federal, the state level. and, then you try to like gain control back of the wrestle control of of the institutions back from the left, which I don't even understand how they think they can do that. Because I feel like if you think you can take the institutions back, it's like, well, the institutions were always controlled by the left. (laughs) Like there wasn't, I think it's just people didn't realize it for the longest time. At least in our lifetimes. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So no, I think like the more libertarian, but I think also the more biblical and Christian way to, To combat this is to say, you know what? No, nothing good comes from tyranny. And even if you try to aim that tyranny towards tyrannically bringing about the culture and the world that you want to see, that's ultimately just going to backfire. And instead, it's kind of like your call is, and this matches up with the Bible and like Jordan Peterson's 12 rules, like you first start by cleaning your own room and you set your life in order. Then you try to set the life of your family and like your indirect families I- in order, then you do like your community, and then you just keep building that out. but if you don't start from that foundation of having your stuff in order, you're not going to be oriented right when you go out and try to set the world in order. And then secondly, if you try to impose I mean you can't impose natural order, right? like natural order is just like by definition natural. If you have to impose it. it's not natural. So I think what the Christian worldview is that there is a natural order that is ordained by God and i think that natural order is essentially respect for private property rights it is essentially social cooperation and people living at and peace people living at peace with one another but you don't get there through advocating for the centralization of power to to impose that you think you get there rather by like you said affecting the culture around us but that means playing a completely different game than what the Republican Party is... Not even what they want to do, what they're even capable of doing.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think everything is descending... Everything in in the two major parties is descending into raw power. And power, I think, has kind of this dichotomy with responsibility. Because, like, power without character is probably going to be tyranny. You know what I mean? And I think one person's power is another person's responsibility. And it's kind of like this whole is the glass half full or is the glass half empty? Well, logically speaking, it's either or. It's how you look at it. And it's the outlook that you take and what you act out with the belief of it being half full or half empty. If you believe that you have power, you're probably going to act out the premise that you have power, which will probably result in tyranny. If instead you believe that you have a responsibility and then you act out the premise that you have responsibility, right. you're probably going to have a different set of results in the real in the world. And again, I think where part of the part of this lines up is that the example of Jesus was not to impose it was here to show it was here to reveal it was here to guide and he didn't use the power of the father to impose anything he didn't have the pharisees come to his side and impose these things it was i think a big part of this is because something i mentioned earlier that we're social creatures and so each of us has a responsibility to kind of be a beacon because the more people who set an example of one pattern the more likely that pattern is to repeat itself, whether it's good or bad. So that's the calling, is that we have to set our pattern in a line with what you might call the will of God in order to set the right example so that other people will emulate us. And again, it's not about imposing. People then see you doing well and then say, I want to live that way. I want to have that relationship with God or however you might see it.
1: Right, yeah. And I mean, the example of Jesus you brought up is definitely lines up with this perfectly. I mean, Jesus one of my favorite stories is where he sits his apostles down and tells them that gives us like this huge, like this little speech about like how if one of you wants to be the greatest among you, you have to be a servant you have to humble yourself and be the least among you. And that even like, even I have come not to conquer the world, but to be a servant to the world. And then he show demonstrates this to them by washing their feet, which is kind of like, in the Christian sense, it's like this is literally God. This is like the what the Jews viewed as, you know, like his apostles at least viewed him as the Messiah, as like the rightful king of the Jews. And what he's doing is washing their feet, which is an incredibly humbling thing that's just grounded in service. And where that lines up, I mean, it lines up in libertarian ideas in multiple ways. One, it on a I wouldn't say less important level, but just like on a strict economic level, it reminds me of how the free market is sort of like if you, the people who do the best in the free market are those who provide the best services and the most useful services or goods to people in the market. Like you don't, in the free market, you can't become, you can't get to the top of that competence hierarchy by dominating people. You can only do it by, exchanging value and by providing so much value. And you do that by fulfilling people's needs in exchange for them fulfilling a need that you want, whether it's money, whether it's services or or whatever. So there's that element to it, which I don't think is unimportant. But then on a deeper level, then like in our communities, if we're talking about we want our children to live freer lives and we want our society to we want our country to pull the brakes on the suicide run that we're on, (laughs) just heading towards financial collapse, heading towards more and more cultural decay and things like that. I think that starts not by, like you said, it doesn't start by coming and trying to force things back into order. It comes by serving people around us and eliminating that need or that desire for the state. Like I think where, where we are right now is that there are a lot of things that, the free market could provide and that you can provide and that like churches can provide. But right now it's all being dominated by the state and people feel like they need the state to give them the things that they want. And if we can start showing people that not only does the state not give you what you want, it just promises that it will. And then it, it it, at best gives you at like, you know, it's kind of like when you go to a fast food restaurant and the you know, the menu is like you get you see this nice really tall big Big Mac and then you open it up and it's this big flat just greasy pile of crap. <laughs> it's like that's at best what the government does and at worst they're like murdering you <laughs> and 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 enslaving you. So that's the spectrum we're dealing with here in terms of what the government has to offer. Or look over here at what we have to offer, which is you know this culture of people who provide mutual aid to one another, who exchange information with one, with, with one another and who don't seek to steal from one another or gain advantage over one another, but rather I, and I agree with you, libertarianism is kind of a baseline philosophy, but I think one point of it that is I don't know, like a little bit more sophisticated than just like a baseline legal theory is the idea of like social cooperation and and that playing out at the community level. So that that's kind of like my my pitch to Christians is that like the, the, you
2: need the church,
1: yeah. Like in, in <laughs> the,
2: you need the, you need the church in the in the organic sense, not the not the necessarily the the, the big building and everything, but you need right. the community. You know what right. I mean? You need the community of the faithful, <laughs> right? Exactly. Um, and 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 um, you know, I think there's a lot of context that that could take God and religious and not religious, but yeah, I I think community is ultimately the thing that has to replace government, and and you know more than people. I think I don't think people think about it in terms of I need the state. I think they think about it in, if anything, I think they think about it in terms of, I need security, I need certainty, yes. I need, you know, these kinds of things. And that has been claimed by the state. So that's basically the only conception that they, they have of right. these things. But again, this is another reason where I think, you know, religion is very, for their purposes, disruptive because it, it does call to something higher of uh, like the church, the concept of the church and the community being the thing that takes care of each other.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, there's a reason why the communists went after the churches first, <laughs> and I think even today, which why there's there's such a vitriol towards the church by by the left is that like if you if you have something that is at your you know so, something that's beyond the state or humans or celebrities that you place at your sovereign, you know, especially looking at like the biblical narrative and all the examples of people who who refused to bow down to the state or submit to the state in different scenarios it definitely can be a thwart to people in to the people in power and their plans to try to subjugate people and get them to fall along with their their plans and machinations. So, yeah, I think, you know, community and culture is where it starts and that's that's something that, you know, as much as the the Mises caucus and the Libertarian Party has political elements to it, I think the the cultural elements, you would say, are probably if not just as important, probably like more important because the, the political stuff doesn't really get accomplished without that cultural stuff really driving it.
2: Yeah, no, I, I think they're codependent. I, I, I think you have to have one without the other. You know, we can sit here and quibble over, should you run as a Republican? Should you run as a libertarian and, and all of that kind of stuff? But fundamentally, I don't think any, any strategy will, will work out in the end if we don't have that community element. So that means that we have to in, we have to nourish our own community and our own culture to be strong enough in the long term to to you know do this work, and we also have to reach out on a broader cultural level to get our you know to evangelize so to speak you know like to to get to get this uh, message out there and you know maybe we can save our polity with libertarianism that might not necessarily be the thing that saves your soul but I think there's a lot of overlap. In, in the approach of how we spread these things and, and how they go hand in hand and how both can improve your life. And, you know, I think they've both been lost. How liberty, how liberty can provide the opportunity for you to uh, maximally improve your life. I think that is, uh, and, and how you have to take, and how you have to voluntarily take the responsibility to make that your life something of your life. I think those have both been lost to kind of the victim mentality and I'm owed by society mentality instead of the other way around.
1: Right. Yeah. And I think that's fun. And I agree with, I don't think people start from that premise of like, I want the state. It's just that it's partly indoctrination, but it's not just indoctrination of like, you're told in public school, you need the state for X, Y, and Z. It's like all the incentive structures and the way that our youth are raised, it, it orients them towards this super high time preference lifestyle and towards this, like you said, this very, very victim mentality, which is, The opposite of what, you know, libertarianism is a philosophy that depends upon personal responsibility and Christianity, you know, echoes that with, you know, the whole image of Jesus saying, pick up your cross and follow me. And the idea of like, you know, as people were called to like, yeah, like one, one universal is that like there's suffering in this world. And even, even in a completely libertarian society, there'd still be death. There'd still be suffering. There'd still be evil, you know, human, humans that are. Predating off of on one another, I don't think any serious libertarian tries to sell it as a as a utopian paradise, but rather it's an opportunity to have that ultimate personal responsibility to, and, and then just have it all rest on your shoulders, or if you're a Christian, to to have it all rest on your shoulders and God's shoulders, and not have to be fighting the state at the same time to try to carve out what you can out of this world for you and your family, and and to leave that kind of legacy behind.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And in both cases, I think we've got to take it straight to the community, you know? And I think that's what people are craving is authenticity. So that's, that's why our political strategy, the political element of our strategy is local for multiple reasons, you know? And um, part of it is that, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of trust element of it. And, and I, I don't think we as libertarians have done enough to garner trust of people. And that's something that we have to recapture. And I think we do that by going straight to the community, which in the political sense means running for local level office, you know, city council, mayor, school board, that kind of thing, and and focus on decentralization and kind of start to open up that choice and, and separate ourselves from the feds. And at the very, very least, give our communities more choice. And, and you know, if if nothing else, have politics be attached to the culture again. Because that, that is completely gone. Right now, it's like these warring factions fighting for control over each other and there's no room for this like decentralized approach where maybe you know just here in our state the mountains amish country and philly are so different you know what i mean like and 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 that they might as well be different nations in a sense and you know maybe maybe those localities ought to have more or those uh, those localities ought to have more decision making for themselves to be in line with their culture i think that's a message that a lot of people can can get down with no i agree
1: last question would be can you give people a sense of an idea of? We've talked a lot about the culture, but you know what? What and you you went a little bit in the detail there, but if you could, you know, perhaps give people a little bit more to what sort of local action people can do because I think there's a lot of people who don't think that there's really much to do in local politics. Now, I think that's changed a little bit with COVID. I think people really uh-huh. woke up to how much local politics mattered more than they realized. But some people might not know, like, well, okay, it matters, but what can, what can you do at the local level? And can a libertarian party do anything at the local level to give people back more of their freedom? So what are some of the examples of things that have been
2: done or things that are under the work? I think there's the most opportunity by far at the local level. You know, for for many reasons, and and especially for libertarians, you know, I, I kind of mentioned this issue of trust. Well, I think people perceive the the political stakes at the local level to be the lowest, and then therefore they're the most open to suggestion or you know go in a different way at that level than say president, where they perceive the stakes to be the absolute highest. But you know, th- there really is the the limits to what you can do locally are kind of your imagination when you consider the the Tenth Amendment and that's really what undergirds a lot of our political strategy is the fact that you have a very short list in article 1 section 8 of the constitution that the federal government is uh, supposed to be involved in and so therefore everything else that's not in uh, in article 1 section 8 is left to the states and the people and for the feds to do it is unconstitutional and the and the, the localities and the states have the power to nullify and make their own decisions uh, in these arenas or not follow the dictates of the feds in, in these arenas. So when you look at it that way, I mean, everything related to education, everything to related to healthcare, you know, and many other things, gun control, drug laws, all of this stuff is under the purview of the 10th Amendment and, you, and therefore your town. Right. So that's, that's what you can do at the local level. And uh, so really you can strike at the feds directly from your locality if you look at it that way. So, you know, maybe you're in a red town and you're serious about your Second Amendment and you're concerned about, you know, dictates from the feds or Biden getting, you know, saber rattling about, you know, gun control and this kind of thing. Well, you can do a gun sanctuary. It's been done, you know, like you can you can do that. And that's why I think it's the most uh, the most viable for us as libertarians. And then if we as libertarians, because, again, we haven't built up the trust in society from the ground level up, start to come through and deliver on these type of things that both we want from a liberty perspective and other people want, say, you know, say, you, you're, uh, say your local right-wingers are serious about their gun rights and and they're not being given it from their the politicians that they've elected, then, you know, now that you can start to garner that trust and then I think things start to open up and the possibilities start to expand.
1: Yeah, and you don't even, like, I know you were able to do, get things done at your local uh, municipal level and you weren't even an elected politician. You just showed up to your uh, city council meetings and we're like why why, why is you know what was it was it cannabis i think was the first thing you talked about well, yep. or, yeah like why is cannabis you know you guys talk about it but it's still illegal here why don't we do something about that <laughs> and so yeah, it's we like, can
2: set the tone for the state you know yeah. like we could be part of a thing that sets the tone for the state you know i live in a very democrat town you haven't decriminalized it here it's in the party platform for the democrats this is that means it's a home run for your people why is it taking me, the libertarian dude, to randomly show up? And you know what I mean? Like, that's kind of the angle that I took. You know, and it passed, and then a couple other towns, as a result, like, right next to me, passed it on their own.
1: Right. And we can do this with, like you said, we can do it with the Second Amendment. We can do this with criminal justice reform. Really, the sky's the limit. So, and, you know, the Tenth Amendment strategy kind of comes out of the Tenth Amendment Center, which LCI's Absolutely. very own Mike Mahary is the communications director of. So, and he's going to be at the Take Human Action Tour. So, Mike, to close this out, give your last final plug for the tour. Remind people where they can go find it, if they want to go check it out, if they want to get tickets and whatnot, and any other plugs for the Mises Caucus or
2: anything else you got going on. Absolutely. So TakeHumanActionTour.com, that's where you can get your tickets. We've got, I mean, Dave Smith coming out to, to New York. We've got Maj Touré going to a bunch of these events. Tom Woods is going to several of these events. Michael Rechtenwald, Gene Epstein... Like you said, Mike Mahari is going to be at about half of these events. Michael Bolden is going to be at a bunch of these events. Jeff Deist is coming out. We just got Robert Breedlove. So we're getting the Bitcoiners out. I got Ian Crossland from TimCast coming out to the event in uh, in Oakland, California. So like I said, we're kind of casting that net. And you know, this is a real community investment by us as the Mises Caucus to kind of give the community something to stay excited about in this part of the presidential cycle where there's not much going on. So get people together get serious about local, offer training opportunities to go for that strategy. And, uh, you know, we're, it's going to be all throughout April and May. So we got New York coming up April 1st. We've got Chicago after that on April 15th. Nashville on April 22nd after that. Austin, Texas on April 29th. Oakland, California on May 13th. And then Denver, Colorado on May 27th. So TakeHumanActionTour.com. That's where you can get all the details, your tickets, and your lunch.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you, Mike, for coming on and talking about the t- the tour, talking about the ideas of, the, you know, <laughs> we, we, we uh, took 30 minutes and mashed like four different things together. But I, you know, I think definitely have to have you back on sometime to do a deeper dive into all these topics. But I think hopefully people got from this the idea of how we can take human action, as uh, the, the saying goes, at our local level, and we can begin to set the world straight you know, one, one conversation at a time. And, you know, from the Christian perspective, I'll, I'll just hammer home that point of doing things in the way that Jesus did, which was going out, building relationships, building trust with people, and just showing people that he had a better way than what the ruling elites and the, even the religious elites at the time had to offer. So I'll leave it at that. Thank you, Mike, for joining me again. Thanks everyone for listening.
0: And we will talk with you guys again next week. The Biblical Anarchy Podcast is a part of the Christians for Liberty Network, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you love this podcast, it helps us reach more with a message of freedom when you rate and review us on your favorite podcast apps and share with others. If you want to support the production of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, Please consider donating to the Libertarian Christian Institute at biblicalanarchypodcast.com, where you can also sign up to receive special announcements and resources related to biblical anarchy. Thanks for tuning in.